I'm Jill Anderson. This is the Harvard EdCast. Wade Morris knows few pieces of paper from school hold more influence over us than report cards. He's an experienced educator and researcher whose journey into understanding the evolution of report cards started with his own struggle as a parent during COVID online learning. Report cards have a long history in the educational landscape, beginning as a teacher's experiment to control unruly students in the 1830s, to their current role as influential documents that impact college admissions. I wanted to learn more about report cards' interesting past. First, I asked Wade to tell me what interested him in report cards. As we were transitioning to online learning, which you've written about, right, how difficult it was to be a parent in the age of COVID online learning, my own kids were going through the challenges. And my my middle daughter, in particular, was having a hard time with online worksheets. And my wife and I considered, okay, let's just drop the worksheets and let her go outside and play. But then we concluded that the missing work would appear on her report cards mm-hmm. and that that would ultimately impact her long-term uh, you know, prospects. And she's only in second grade. Right. Uh, and so that's when the light bulb went off that these pieces of paper have a strange power over us. And right. that that could be the literary device through which I tried to engage in the nearly 200 years of formal public schooling in American history. So you call report cards tools of control. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar with Michel Foucault. He's this French intellectual in the 1960s and 70s. He argued that the last 200 years of Western civilization had seen this shift. The shift was how power was exerted. Prior to the 1700s and early 1800s, power, according to Foucault, would have been exerted through force, right? But then Foucault noticed, and he particularly focused on prisons, and he focused on insane asylums. He noticed that power now was exerted through documentation and surveillance. He dabbled in talking about school, but I'm not aware of him ever mentioning things like report cards. But to me, it was like just an obvious Foucauldian disciplinary tool, as Foucault would say. And so essentially what started the whole process of this project was trying to figure out if Foucault was right trying to figure out if these pieces of paper that emerged in the in the United States in the 1830s and 40s, if they actually were intended to be a tool of control as opposed to a tool of learning and a tool of tracking progress. I love the beginning, what you kind of uncovered about where these came from, because when you reflect on the way people are about assessment right now, and there's a lot of strong disdain for it, even among teachers, It's interesting to see that report cards essentially began with a teacher, it sounds like. Right. Yes. This is like uh, one of those empirical historical arguments that I'm trying to make, right? That this is not me projecting onto the intentions of teachers. This is teachers documenting their intentions themselves. Right. And so teachers in the 1830s and 1840s and 50s in this antebellum period at the birth of the common school, right? So these are these new public schools in which the government, state governments were trying to encourage kids whose parents had never experienced school to try to enroll. And so these teachers in the trenches of these new common schools were dealing with this common problem across different states, which was 
teachers and parents were not getting along and the kids were resisting teacher control. It was sometimes violent. It was sometimes deeply intense, even more intense than you could argue than it is today in this period, because fundamentally parents at this time, most of them are rural farm workers, do not understand what the purpose of these new public schools are. And so you have these teachers documenting in education journals, documenting in the minutes of their meetings and letters to each other, even in their journals and their diaries, the personal uh, journals that they wrote, they're documenting about experimenting with different ways to try to win over the support of the parents in an attempt to try to control the students in the classroom. It's very explicit. It's very tangible. It's not a lofty abstract kind of purpose to the origins of these things. And it's invented at the grassroots. It's not pedagogues. It's not administrators that are coming up with this. It's just the daily interactions that teachers had with students experimenting, trying different things. And then fundamentally, as the decades progressed, they kind of coalesced around this one idea of report cards is really the thing that works the best. Can you talk a little bit about sort of the period over the 20th century when we start to see report cards become this broader tool where we start to see them being a part of college admissions process, job applications, like they really took on a life of importance, it seems, for people. Oh, it's crazy. Yeah. And I think it even starts before the 20th century in the post-war era. So 1870s and even during the Civil War, you saw a lot of things. You see advertisements from private companies trying to sell these new standardized uh, <laughs> report cards. So people are making a buck off of this. And then in the 1870s, with the growth of an institutionalized school, you see superintendents, you see districts starting to get more organized. If you're curious more about this, David Labory talks about this a lot in his great books. But anyway, so you see these superintendents emerge and the superintendent starts to impose the report cards from the top down. And then all of a sudden the narrative switches, right? These teachers who invented it 30 or 40 years before start to resist it as additional part of their workload. So to your point, the audience, the intended audience of the report card expands at this time also. You start to see in the 1880s and 1890s that employers were looking at report cards. So it's not just about the parents who are looking at this. And then in the early 1900s, juvenile corrections systems start to use them, right? Teacher written report cards being submitted to parole officers and to judges to decide about whether or not a kid should be incarcerated. You know, I mean, now all of a sudden these report cards have a lot of power and dictate whether or not a kid actually has literal freedom. And then in the 19 teens and 1920s, with the growing importance of college admissions and the growing competition for college admissions, then it starts to be a litmus test for getting into university. At first, it's not really for the kids who have wealth. You know, in the 19-teens and 1920s, what you typically see is that if a kid can pay for college, if a kid comes from a family that's been going to that college, there were no college admissions department, but the universities and colleges would essentially just look for completion, not necessarily for specific grades. Like they don't care if you have A's or B's, just did you pass? But then the kids that want scholarships, that's when it becomes really, really important for the working class kids looking to get into university. And that's when you see this new era of anxiety about these documents, the anxiety that we still live with 100 years later. Do you think report cards are effective? Yes, Jill. (laughs) Yes, they are incredibly effective. That's why they never go away. Since the birth of report cards, report cards have had critics. Right. And they've had reformers that have tried to create alternative systems. Yeah, really look into this with the alternative school movement in the 1960s and 1970s, when there's this wave of zealotry to try to get rid of grades 
and get rid of report cards. And a lot of your listeners may remember this era, right? They may have come up through school during this era, but it's, you know, you had at the peak of the alternative school movement, the United States had 5 million kids enrolled in these schools that were supposed to be more democratic, uh, more inspired by Dewey with student interest driven. And the big one is to eliminate grades, right? That was a universal principle for a lot of these alternative schools. But fundamentally, the alternative school movement burned out. And then it gave birth in the 1980s and 1990s to the testing movement and kind of a return to the basics of traditional school. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons why alternative school movement ultimately failed to change the mainstream American education. One of those reasons is that grading and systems of reporting is just really effective. It's effective at saving time for teachers, Hmm. right, who don't have to write narrative reports, who don't have to make home visits. It's effective at motivating students, even though it's an extrinsic motivation that has all kinds of unintended consequences like anxiety and like sometimes bitterness and and neurosis and self-loathing. And it's also extremely effective at still today winning over the support of parents. And I don't know, Jill, maybe you're like me. I still save report cards, right, with my kids. <laughs> now they're digital. They're in a Google Drive now, but we still save them, right? And Because there's something deeply rooted about our psyche. This all kind of gets back to Foucauldian stuff, that report cards are a great way of controlling people because we like it. We fundamentally want more of it. We want more data. We want more rankings. We want more surveillance of ourselves. The inward gaze that Foucauldian disciples talk about that a lot of education does, right? It forces us to look back on ourselves as opposed to kind of pausing to reflect on the bigger system. What you're saying is you can't really imagine or fathom a world where report cards wouldn't exist in sort of the traditional school system. Right. Maybe one of the big flaws of history is that we're not very good at imagining things. You've had a lot of great guests, Jill, over the years that can imagine a better system. But what history does is look at the evidence from the past and fundamentally it makes us reject any kind of sense of nostalgia that there was any kind of alternative that we should live up to. But secondly, we also in the history field look at the attempts that have failed in the past and we kind of fundamentally conclude that a big drastic change, a big revolution that will remake all of American education, which a lot of your brilliant guests have talked about, isn't really practical because it's been tried before and it hasn't worked. Now, that's not to say that we can't reform the system and make it marginally more humane. Right. I hope we can. And Ethan Hunt and Jack Schneider have just published a new book that's brilliant on this. It's called Off the Mark. And they come to the same conclusion. They suggest that maybe we can make report cards less permanent, can go back and change a grade after a kid shows progress. That's a creative solution that maybe deserves some more exploration. There's things that have been tried before that might help. Narrative reports teacher comments, more narrative-driven report cards that maybe either replace grades or supplement the grades. There's problems with that. There's trade-off. One is teacher time. The second is teacher ability. Do we have the ability to actually convey specific meaning and dig into each child's psyche in just a single paragraph? What ends up happening with a lot of narrative reports is that they turn into kind of lacking substance, right? And kind of wrote copy and paste kind of things. There's portfolios. There's been generations of schools that have tried to create portfolios of student work. It could be written, could be art, could be math portfolios even. But the problem there is on the receiving end of this information, do the universities and do the parents have the time and the patience to actually look at the portfolios and try to understand the gradual growth that a student or a learner actually shows, right? And so back to your point, like report cards are efficient. They convey specific meaning very quickly and it saves us time. 
So it sounds like report cards aren't going to go anywhere, even though this tension exists between assessment, grading, people love this topic, love to hate it. And report cards, it just seems like this will always exist in some manner in modern schooling. And that's why I get very bored with the Foucault point very quickly, right? (laughs) After I researched the antebellum period, it was clear to me that, okay, Foucault's onto something here. Then the question was, how do like ordinary teachers like me and parents and students carve out meaning or try to carve out meaning within the classroom and even joy in the classroom, right? And this is an existential question for me as a career teacher, right? In the middle of his career, I got another 20 years left of teaching. You know, mm-hmm. what's the point? What's the point? Is it just about control or can I live with a certain degree of cognitive dissonance and still try to give my students space to actually love what we do, even within this system that is fundamentally about discipline, I think. And so that's kind of what the rest of my research has tried to be about is how people in the 1870s, a formerly enslaved person in the 1870s carves out meaning during reconstruction in the classroom. How do parents balance the neurosis of and the anxiety of having children come home with report cards while also trying to encourage their children to love learning? How do parents do that in the 1880s? Turn of the century, juvenile corrections. How does a kid who really hates the system in Colorado fight back against it And then can he, can he actually resist the system all the way through his adolescence? And then, you know, get all the way through the alternative school movement, which ultimately is kind of a tragic failure, I think. But there is still a kernel of alternative school movement idealism that's still out there. And there is still space for these schools to exist. It's just really hard. It's really hard for parents and students to find them and then find the resources to actually attend them. This is what I think is more interesting to me than just the question of discipline and control It's the existential question of how do we find meaning in all of this? How do you balance something like grading your students, which is something everyone has to do in most teaching professions, and that what you just mentioned, the joy of learning, because the two don't always feel like they are aligned. Right. I hesitate to ever suggest to teachers what they should do, but I know what I'm trying to do. It might not work with other teachers, but one of the things I do is just admit it. Name the thing that grades are with the students and maybe turn it into a discussion. As a history teacher, I can incorporate into the content of the course. I teach politics also. There's a lot of political theory that this stuff is relevant to. You can turn this into a metaphor. And so by naming it, though, by describing it to the students, and the students instinctively feel it a lot of times, right? That The fact that this is reductionist, it's fundamentally reducing human beings to numbers and letters. The fact that we can name it for them. Maybe it helps them a little bit. Maybe it helps them understand that they are normal and they're responding in normal ways to an abnormal system. And the abnormal system hasn't been around for centuries. It's been around for almost two centuries, but it doesn't go back millennia. And then, you know, this is what a lot of pedagogues say is critical consciousness, the self-awareness, the awareness of how we got where we are today. And maybe that helps. Hmm. Has your personal and professional views of report cards changed as a result of doing this research? I'm at peace with it now. (laughs) I'm at peace with report cards. Yeah. I mean, I kind of went full circle, right? You know, I spent 15 years in the classroom before doing this research and I hadn't really paused to reflect on the context of where the system emerged and how it emerged. And then I went through my critical theory phase where it's about oppressed and oppressors 
And then there's the crisis where you think, okay, I'm part of the oppression. And now I'm kind of at peace with, I can be a really good teacher. Maybe not the greatest, not the greatest for every kid, not the one that every kid needs, but I can be a good teacher that can help kids balance the pressures and anxieties of grades with a genuine joy for learning. The thing I figured out is that I've got to demonstrate it myself and also admit and explain that what they're going through in the broader context of how they feel, feeling oppressed by grades is normal. It's essentially like this middle age cognitive dissonance that maybe a lot of a lot of teachers like me might feel. Do you think parents should look at these documents a little bit differently, knowing the history yes. of them? Yes. Like this might sound cheesy and it's also self-serving as a, as a historian and a history teacher. Learning about the context of how the system emerged gives you a sense of self-awareness and wisdom. And what comes with wisdom is knowing that twas ever thus. And so therefore, I'm not going to overreact. And I think we do need some more wisdom amongst parents in perspective, right? It doesn't necessarily mean that I know the answer of how to manage any given situation. But I do think that that's kind of the great gift that history gives us is just to take a deep breath. We are living through a 200-year epoch and we can't control it and we can de-escalate when things don't go well for our children. That's kind of my instinct at least. Right. So when you see that D come home on your kid's report card, not to panic. Yeah. Right. Or Google uh, American History of Education, read a little bit and then go confront your kid. Sorry, Jill, I'm being sarcastic, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So don't put as much weight into them, basically. I suppose so. I suppose so. We will get through this and we're all going through this together. Wade Morris is a high school history teacher at an international boarding school in Moshi, Tanzania. He's the author of Report Cards, A Cultural History. I'm Jill Anderson. This is the Harvard EdCast produced by the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Thanks for listening.